Welcome to this episode of the Yoga Therapy Hour. Today, we will be talking about receiving a cancer diagnosis and going through treatment and how it is that yoga therapy can support us through that journey. My guest, Kimberly Searle, who is a CIAYT, and I have both gone through this cancer journey within the last few years. And for me, it was quite unexpected. I don't have cancer running in my family. It was just a very surprising diagnosis. And so when you get a surprise like that in life, it really brings you kind of like you hit a wall and you're thinking, okay, what the heck is happening here? And at least for me, I reevaluated my whole life. I had four months where I basically couldn't talk to anyone and I was laying in bed and, you know, just trying to recover. And I had a lot of time to think about my life and where I've been so far and the people I love and what I want to do for work in the world, how much I want to work. And I've said this before, the biggest thing that came to me during those four months and was basically that I didn't feel I'd had enough fun in this life. I was always in survival mode. I didn't feel I had enough joy and I didn't have enough time with the people that I love and want to spend time with, especially once the pandemic hit. Living up here in a cabin in the woods, I really didn't have the support system I needed to get through that cancer diagnosis. And it really changed me. It made me think like, okay, what haven't I done in this life? And I've had a wonderful life. Don't get me wrong. If that had been the end, it would have been okay. But I realized I wanted to be closer to those people that love me and I love them, specifically my family and my parents. And I wanted to be in a place where my nervous system feels at peace. And I can say the high altitude on the mountain that I live in, it just kind of puts me in a state of what we might call vata imbalance. And I realized like, I need to get off this mountain. (laughs) And so for a number of reasons, we decided to move to Minnesota closer to family. And the few times that I've gone there and the planning and getting the move started, I have just felt completely different in my nervous system. So I'm just saying that sometimes when you have a chance to reevaluate your life, like a cancer diagnosis, it can be a really good thing. It can really help you evaluate where you've been, where you are now, where you might like to be in the future. And it's a really good time to take a reset and to say, wow, this hasn't been working for me, or I want more of this, and I'm willing to change my life and some decisions to get where I want to go. So I think that was one of the biggest things that having cancer did for me. And I think this episode is going to be very interesting to anyone who's either going through cancer treatments or loves someone that is. I think you'll be surprised at how much of yoga, yoga therapy, yoga philosophy is kind of woven in between the fabric of your life while going through cancer and that how wonderful it might be to hire a yoga therapist, especially one who's been through cancer. I really feel like somehow, if you know, you know, not to say there aren't other yoga therapists that do other wonderful work, but in this instance, I don't know, I think it would be really good if you're experiencing this diagnosis to hire a yoga therapist who kind of specializes in this or has been through it themselves because I think it's really an opportunity to look at death, to look at life and to have a reset. And sometimes it's nice to have someone who's done that before you, we call that an acharya. So I welcome you to my interview with Kimberly Searle and I know that you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. We are so grateful to you, our listeners. 
for staying with us all the way to season six and over a hundred thousand downloads. We've had several hundred episodes and we would love your support to continue to produce the podcast. You can become a Patreon member or you can download our mobile app called The Optimal State for both iPhone and Android and join in the community that is gathering around the mobile app. So go ahead, download that app and then enjoy the guest of today. Thank you for joining us and we appreciate you being here. Welcome, Kimberly Searle. So nice to have you today. Thank you for having me. Kimberly, when I saw the topic that you volunteered your time and love and energy so generously to talk about today, I had a quickening because it has to do with the big C word, cancer. And I know this is a topic that is probably very near and dear to your heart and to mine. So thank you for being willing to be outspoken about it. Thank you. Yeah. Fortunately, unfortunately, it's a common thread that we both share. And I think it made me a better clinician having experienced it through yoga therapy. And so it'll be exciting to share it with your listeners today. Wonderful. So I think... I always like to start with a little story just so the listener can kind of frame like, who is this person? You know, what is their lens that they're looking through? So like, where are you from? You know, you are a yoga therapist, obviously, maybe a brief history of maybe getting cancer if you're willing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm Kimberly Searle. I currently reside in Michigan. I have always grown up around the Great Lakes. So I like to claim myself as the Great Lakes girl because I prefer fresh water over salt water. <laughs> so I've been a practicing yoga therapist. So let's see, I went through grad school in 2015, but I changed my career in the early 2000s. I went from the corporate world into more of a therapeutic movement world, basically for my own health. I was seeking to improve my health. I had a horseback riding accident and yoga helped me explore movement pain-free. And that's how I got into the world of yoga and have been practicing ever since. I grew up on a farm in Kinsman, Ohio. I grew up on a sheep farm and we had horses. So I grew up riding. I think my first pony came at age one and I, I rode all the way up until my accident. And now I ride off and on, but not as passionately as I did before. Um, cancer's been in my vocabulary since it's young as I could remember. My dad's side of the family tree is riddled with cancer, different types of cancers. And my dad's youngest brother died of leukemia. And this is how I first started to learn about cancer. So I always talk about, it seems weird that cancer might be a friendly word, but it's a word that's been around for so long that it didn't have a huge amount of fear for me. It did have concern and I knew what would happen to me or what I was about to experience. But I didn't see it as a death sentence, even though I was diagnosed with stage four metastatic cancer by the time I arrived at the hospital system that inevitably saved my life. So with all of that, because I knew that, it turned out that I had genetic cancer. I have a gene mutation mm -hmm. called PALB2. And that's, you know, what we're here to talk about today is how does yoga therapy support cancer patients? And not only do I have an intellectual knowledge of it, but I also have a lived experience of it now. You know, when I heard you talking about how it maybe didn't have the charge for you around a death sentence, I've heard this and maybe you have too, that we all have cancer inside of us all the time. It's a matter of do those cells start to duplicate to a point where we get diagnosed and have to, you know, have surgery or chemo or radiation. So that helped me feel like, okay, this has always been here. It will always be here. It's just a matter of working with it. But when I hear you say you had stage four metastatic breast cancer, Ooh, I don't know if I could talk myself into that, that this is not a death sentence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And you know what? It's, it is the part of the cancer stage, the diagnosis stage, or even seeking 
a diagnosis because, you know, when you first start to enter, you're not even sure what's going on, right? And that's the part of the stage of cancer that as a clinician, I did not give enough weight to. Matter of fact, I actually went back to my oncology clients that I had and apologized because it's a pretty turbulent time. You know, something's wrong. You're advocating for yourself. And for me, I was in one hospital system that didn't really hear me. But luckily, I went in for a routine pap smear. And that doctor was like, whoa, no, I'm on the same page with you and helped me get into the healthcare system that I was in. And so I remember my husband kind of driving me up for what would be a big day in the hospital. We were redoing mammograms, ultrasound, taking more biopsies. Your case at my hospital goes in front of a tumor board. What is the tumor board going to say? And so I found out my stage of diagnosis that day, right? I knew I had cancer at this point, but I didn't know what stage. And so to hear that in stage four metastatic, because Mm -hmm. the other hospital hadn't even caught that it crossed the midline yet. It was difficult. And I remember my husband kind of pulling up and, you know, it said the Rogel Cancer Center. And I remember recoiling. I could just feel my body, like before we even got into the parking deck and we're in the parking lot and my husband's like, get out of the car. And I'm like, nope. (laughs) He's like, you got to get out of the car. You need this. And I'm like, I'm not a cancer patient. Nope. (laughs) So it just took me for a minute to see myself in a different light. And I was going to have to see myself as now this person that needed help. Yeah. You go from being the healer to, you know, the healer that's in need. And that's a difficult place to be. For those of you who have never had cancer or been close to someone who had cancer, like I didn't know anything about cancer because nobody in my family really has had it. And it was such a shock when I was diagnosed, but I didn't understand that sometimes you don't even get your stage for like six months. Like, you know, they kept saying, well, it looks like it's this stage, but if it's traveled, then it's that stage. So you go through months and months of testing sometimes and then, oh, we saw a spot over here. So now we have to test that. So I love what you're saying is that in those first months, you don't have all the answers. You don't even know what your stage is. And that gray area or that unknown can be very stressful also. Even if you end up finding out it was stage one or two, you didn't know that for four to six months, at least in my case. Yeah. You know, my husband and I didn't call it stage four either. We would call it stage 3.5 because Mm -hmm. there were some unknown answers. And so I picked language very purposely, thriving through cancer healing through cancer. Now that I'm currently at an NED, no evidence of disease, I am trying to catch myself if I talk about it present tense, I'll say I had cancer. Now I know that that gene mutation never leaves me, right? Mm -hmm. My world is forever changed, but I don't want to become cancer. That's not who I am at my core. It's something that I just happen to be dealing with. So that's a really interesting yogic way to think of it, that you are not that. You are a whole person. You have many facets of your being. I think you believe in God. So maybe you're a child of God or Purusha or an eternal soul. Like there's many ways that you think of yourself and that you had cancer is part of that wholeness. Yeah, absolutely true. I had a lot of spiritual conversations. And I continue to have them. I don't shy away from them. But probably as I think about that, my father was a very spiritual person and he and I would spend a lot of time in nature. And as I was supporting him through the end of his life, whenever we would go in for surgery, he would force those working on him because some of them didn't want to slow down enough to participate. But he would force his surgeon and those who would support the surgeon to talk to him before they put him under. My dad wanted a handshake with everybody, but he really wanted to find out like, how many years have you been doing this? Do you have a family? I have a family. He wanted to make a human connection. And I asked him one time about it. I said, dad, you know, like they're trying to get stuff done. Like, why do you want to do this? And he said, well, I've never met them before. They're going to be working on me. 
And, you know, if they get to a judgment call and they're not sure, I don't want them to see me as I was surgery number four today. I was Richard Orr, you know, and this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And he's like, it was really important for him to know that he had that connection. And I took that with me through my entire journey through the hospital system. I really try to see the worker working on me. I try to, you know, make some sort of connection with them and let them know who I am as well. That's so beautiful. So beautiful. It brings you to that humanness rather than the disease itself. It's the difference between like a pathogenic diagnosis. You are woman in bed 34B versus a salutogenic. You are this whole human being that happens to be in the hospital right now for cancer treatment, but also has a husband and a career and is doing good in the world. Yeah. So what is it that you feel yoga or yoga therapy, yoga philosophy did for you in terms of like a mechanism? What does it help you do when you have had cancer? I think some people listening might think, well, how could stretching possibly help? <laughs> with <laughs> You know, all of the above <laughs> is the simple answer. At first, I want to be honest about this. I hit a stage where I was really pissed off at yoga for a while. I drank the green stuff. I had the, you know, the stuff that didn't taste good in that herb that I drank. I did my yoga faithfully. I did all this so I wouldn't get sick. Why am I sick? You know, like I had that moment and I was kind of stewing around in this. And, you know, my husband would say, well, we used to do it. I don't want to do it. You know, I had like this little reaction. And then he said to me, he's like, Kim, he's like, you know, you got this gene mutation that was discovered in 2014. What would your life look like if you hadn't chosen to live a yogic lifestyle? Would this gene mutation have roared its ugly head in your 40s? And you'd be dead because we wouldn't have known about it. Perhaps it saved your life. Mm -hmm. So you were diagnosed at 4950 and they knew what to do. And I was like, Bing, like little light bulb moment came on, right? And so then I got right back into my routine. And in hindsight, looking back, because I chose to live a yogic lifestyle, I think my nervous system was in a really good place. Mm. Not only was I 50 on no medication, but I also had a pretty good foundation to take the heaviness of that that treatment can be. Mm. So through chemotherapy, I relied really heavily on nature and on yoga nidra. Since mm -hmm. I'm not a person that takes a lot of medicine, I needed to see that medicine being put in me, not as poison, but I chose to look at it as a golden nectar mm -hmm. that was healing me and that my kidneys were badass because I was peeing out the, that cancer. Right. And so when you take chemotherapy, um, for me, I had a strong pelvic floor, but my pelvic floor immediately kind of went lax. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had to work on pelvic floor. So urinating, right? That became a big emergency, right? And how do I keep my pelvic floor and my bladder healthy so that I could, you know, have some control of that and not have incontinence? Also, chemotherapy, like you start to lose some quad development. So I would do some 50 squats throughout the day, not 50 in a row. I didn't have that energy, but I do 10 here, 10 there trying to keep that quad strength. And I would do it with intention and breath. And so every stage of treatment was something different that I needed to pick up. So that meant my ideal of what my yoga practice was needed to change. And I always thought of Judith Lassiter's words. One time she had said, if you determine your yoga success by a particular asana, and I'll just pick handstand out of the air, right? And that's my success as a yoga practitioner, but I've set myself up for failure because the risk reward for that asana changes throughout. It's the same thing with any yogic tool, right? You have to be able to flex and flow between what it has to offer to meet you at that particular time. I needed to really let go of what my practice should be to get to that. I think that's something I hear all the time. I was just giving a talk for the University of Minnesota yesterday and at the end, they had a Q&A and someone said, I don't understand the difference between a gym yoga class and yoga therapy. 
And I said, well, a lot of times in yoga therapy sessions, I don't give any asana. I don't give any postures. We do yoga nidra. We do mudra, niyasa. We do breathing. We do meditation, visualization, mindset shifts. Like there may not even be one posture in the practice. And I think that it sounds to me like your practice as you were going through this was able to shift towards yoga nidra, towards connection with nature. Yeah, it moved to when I would meet with my spiritual healer, we would have deep conversations about spirit, about so-called contracts, inner child things that I needed to resolve, breath, meditation, grounding. She likes to do meditation standing all the time, but sometimes I just didn't have the energy for that. And I would need to sit down at times to do a meditation. So all of these things are important. And think about when you're in the chemotherapy phase, you're given so many steroids, which kind of amps up that nervous system. And so I needed the grounding of meditation to start to bring that nervous system down so that I could sleep at night because sleep is a great time to repair the body. Absolutely. And I think in the notes that you and I wrote back and forth about this podcast, I think I remember you saying that the mechanism of how yoga worked during this time and probably in life in general, but let's just focus on this time of experiencing cancer briefly, that the mechanism is all about bringing you back to homeostasis. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I like to call it coming home to yourself. Mm. So think about if you're having this medical treatment that cancer is painful, treatments are painful, and you feel like you're levitating off of the bed that you're on for your treatment, you have to be able to come back to yourself because what you really want to do is jump out of your body and disconnect, right? That's part of the fight, flight, freeze area. And I would find myself in different avenues of that. Typically, I'm a fighter, but I would find myself in flight or in freeze, you know, beyond. And so how would I bring myself back? My breath, my meditation, body scan, where is this part in my body, you know, and rather than running away from it, being with it and, you know, surrounding that with love. For me, the HPA axis, the autonomic nervous system, the vagal tone with your heart rate variability, these were all things that I was navigating and negotiating and had interoceptive knowledge about because I had been practicing. I actually had a doctor say, you know, most of our patients can't articulate what you're feeling and you can articulate it down to the minute thing, you know, like doing a biopsy, I knew where the needle was inside of me, even though I had been numbed. Things of that nature. For about a year now, Optimal State has been offering a yoga therapy clinic. Every week, we have people come together to work on certain things that are happening in their lives, whether they're feeling burnout or anxiety or insomnia or depression. Maybe they have low back pain or neck pain, but we spend an entire month as a community coming together to work on these issues. So whether you have these things happen to you personally or whether you want to know how to work with them professionally, we invite Invite you to our Monday night yoga therapy clinic. If you're doing it for personal growth and development, it is one price. If you'd like to use it as continuing education units, it's a little different price because we add on a small discussion after the class for those who are hoping to get continuing education. We'd love to invite you to this yoga therapy clinic, whether you're doing it for personal or professional reasons, come to www.theoptimalstate.com and look for the Monday night yoga therapy clinic. Hope to see you there. I just want to pick up on that thread. I don't think most people understand that like the nervous system is the driver of the endocrine system, the digestive system, the cardiovascular system, that there's such a connection that if your nervous system is out of balance and maybe you have low vagal tone or low heart rate variability, that somehow that impacts or drives other systems to stay out of balance also. So I think that's the beauty of yoga therapy, as you know, but I'm saying this for the benefit of our listeners, that getting your nervous system to be in balance, to be in homeostasis is a huge, huge deal for all the other systems of the body. 
Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. And I also want to say this, you know, I touched on how it was hard to go from the healer to that that needed healed. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage people to lean into your peers, lean into like I fall in complementary integrative medicine. I leaned into other modalities, a complementary integrative medicine. There comes a time where it's very difficult to do an assessment on yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you lean into, for example, another yoga therapist, they can help you kind of assess that and look for that low hanging fruit because you, you do start to get overwhelmed with all of the things kind of coming towards you. And I have found it very helpful to lean into those that have supported me and to help me navigate that for myself. Well, let's go there a little bit because I'm probably like you and maybe a lot of our listeners that I kind of like to do things on my own. I like to take care of business. I don't ask for help. If I do ask for help, I'm kind of looking over the shoulder, like, are they doing it right? <laughs> and you or me or whoever is the one needing help. I mean, it's humbling. I am the worst person to ask for help. I will not do it so much so that one of my good friends, I was struggling this summer and we were on at a conference together and I was like, just leave me be. I've been here before. I know how to handle this, whatever. And she finally came back later in the day and said, I know you're fine. And I know you're working through this, but I also have to check. Are you afraid to ask me to go do something for you that you do need? <laughs> I was like, well, no, but I appreciate you asking me because she really knew me, right? It was a sign that she knew how I was. For example, I have some lymphatic issues and you cannot massage your back, right? Like, how are you going to get back there and do that? So I have to ask my spouse every day to do a six minute massage. And now it's not a feel goody massage. It's uncomfortable, but I have difficulty asking for that. And since he knows I have difficulty asking, he has made the request that I ask daily, <laughs> but that's really hard to do. But you know, if I didn't ask my acupuncturist to support me with what I was struggling with, mm. I might have more neuropathy issues right? That really helped me slow down my neuropathy. If I didn't ask Amy Lawyer to help me sort through my yoga therapy stuff, perhaps I wouldn't have caught that, you know, I really needed to lengthen my exhale, or perhaps I wouldn't have given myself permission to rest. If I hadn't reached out to my talk therapist to have conversations about you know, can you role play with me how I have this conversation with a friend or family member that I need different support? What does that look like? Or my spiritual healer to talk about death and what do I want my death to look like and to have those conversations, right? You need a village. You need more support and help than you can imagine that people are willing to give still a lot's going to fall on you, but you need people behind you helping you stay upright. You know, Kim, this is kind of personal for me, but that is one of the main reasons I'm moving from California to Minnesota, because when I went through this and my husband and I live up in a mountain town in the woods, like we didn't have the support we needed for my illness, you know, like people right here in the neighborhood. I had lots of support, you know, via Zoom and prayers and calls. And I just thought, this is no way to grow old. We cannot do this alone. Yeah. I mean, my husband and I don't have children. I lost both of my parents during the pandemic. My mom actually passed the day I was scheduling my chemotherapy in a way because I was caregiving for both of them. I was like, okay, now I can focus on me. And, you know, this is a time where you kind of want to be able to call your parents up and be like, I need comfort. And so where would that comfort come from? And the things that I have said to my oncology patients all these years, I wondered who was going to say that to me when I needed to hear that. And what it really ended up being was all of those connections that I made through clients, students, family, friends. It all came back to me. Matter of fact, in the healing center, they made a little bag that was called the bag of sunshine. And people would put in notes about how I changed their lives or something they appreciated about me. And on those days that I was really struggling, I'd go and pull one out and read it. Wow. That's beautiful. And you've also mentioned a couple of times through your spiritual healer or different ways that you examined 
your own death, even though you had said earlier in your mind, stage four metastatic cancer was not a death sentence. At the same time, it sounds like you were willing to talk about that, think about it. Was that natural to just do that? Or was that hard to do that? No, it's interesting. I've never been afraid of talking about death. I've always been open to the conversation. And I had learned healing codes back when, and the person who developed that, their name is escaping me right now. But I was doing, I was in kind of a turbulent time in my life. And so basically it's mudras held at different glandular points and you have affirmations that you say, I should back up a little bit. That's what a healing code is to simplify that. And this particular person has put together different feelings and things and different diseases you know, how you would hold your hands based on that. And my dad had been diagnosed with skin cancer. And so I had noticed through this person's research that there was a lack of patience associated with cancer. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go home next time I'm home. Dad and I are going to have a conversation about this. And he didn't want to have the conversation. I thought, well, you know, why doesn't he want to have this conversation about patients? Because I was asking him, dad, since you've become retired, and now you're dealing with these health hiccups, you've become less patient. Why is that? And I have struggled with patience since I was a child. My mom used to say patience is a virtue. And I used to tell her, I don't like this virtue stuff. But cancer is teaching me patience. I'm learning it the hard way, especially at this stage of cancer treatment. I'm in the hormone therapy stage. I'm very impatient with the recovery process. And so we have to learn that. And then when I was diagnosed, I realized talking about death was harder. And this is what my father was struggling with. Like when the trapdoor of death has been open, it has a different texture, a different meaning. It's a little more present. And that's a totally different conversation. And did I think at 50, I'd be having the end of life conversation with my spouse about what are my wishes? If I get to this point, I want comfort care. I want you to take me out of the medical system. Um, Statistically, I know that we live 25% longer. The patient has a little bit more of a peaceful passing than being in the ICU unit hooked up to everything, right? And so uh, there is a stage where I want my husband to, you know, just bring me home and I'll do the hospice route. And so having those conversations and my husband is a toxic positivity guy, it was a difficult conversation to get him to slow down and to hear that. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to talk about theoretical death, like one day when I die, this is what I think will happen. But when you're really looking at it, like making those kinds of decisions, I think that's a whole different deal. All that theory goes out the window. Yeah, it really does. And I mean, you really have to get comfortable in yourself with all of your life decisions and regrets. What are some things you wished you would have done? How could you put that back into life if you get the chance to continue to live? And like some of the things that I'm struggling with now, it's, and I complain, it's not that I'm ungrateful for being alive today. You know, I really want to accomplish certain things. I want to leave a certain residue behind. You know, my husband will say to me, you know, listen, this is the cost of living tax. You lived. Now there's a cost of living tax. And your impatience with the recovery is part of that cost of living tax. I read something recently about patience because I've not had a lot of patience either. (laughs) thing we need to look at. But I read that it's your tolerance for living with discomfort. That's what patience is. And I thought, well, that's why I just want to get past the discomfort on with the next thing. And so that really kind of changed how I thought about patience. I thought, can I just sit here in this discomfort? And I think it's helping. Maybe. I like that. I'm going to try that too. <laughs> so when we talk about you basically creating the foundation before you had cancer to kind of set you up for best possible outcome. And then I'm sure that you were using different techniques to go through the actual surgeries and chemo and radiation. I know I used mantra and meditation like through every single thing that I had to do. Could you tell us a little bit about 
you and how you used it right there in the moment during certain tests or before surgeries or however you did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it would depend on what I was having done. For example, if we are doing an ultrasound or a photograph of some point, you can imagine bee's breath from our breath, that vibration isn't going to work for that treatment. And so I, sometimes if I thought I really needed the vibration, then I would negotiate with the person working on me. Can you give me a time when go ahead, take a breath like that or not? And so if I couldn't, I went to finger slides with my breath. That helped me stay in my body too, because I could push a little bit more with my nail and feel something. If they're working on the left side of my body, I would try to do something on the right side of my body, like so splitting that blood-brain barrier to help. I'm terrible with needles and I want to run away from the needles. So I would, you know, chat with the healthcare workers, you know, I'm not having a seizure, I'd say, but would it be okay if I just run my feet up and down on the bed so I could keep my arm, for example, still and run my feet up and down and, you know, work with my nervous system in that regard. During radiation, you have to hold your breath for a really long time, a big inhale in. So I would practice the breath beforehand. I asked to take the mouthpiece and practice that way because I had to breathe to a computer, which was very different to my own breath. Doing stretches, I would stretch in the waiting rooms, um, stand up, do some physical postures. Uh, When I had my double mastectomy, you know, arm movement is big. And so I had a advent calendar of tea and I would practice taking the teas in and out and reaching across the table and looking at the tea and breathing as I did that. So there are so many ways to support yourself. When I would do yoga nidra during radiation, because your body's heating, right? You're in essence cooking the tissues together. And so when I did yoga nidra, I did yoga nidra in the universe with the stars and the planets where it's cool and it's vast. I mantra all the time. I can handle hard things. There are trillions of healthy cells within my body. My body is a self-healing miracle. I'm doing my best. I give the rest up to God, right? There were mantras that I would repeat over and over. My body loves me. I'm loving my body back. Wow. All of those were just so beautiful. I can imagine anyone who is going through cancer right now is probably thinking, that's what I need to be doing. I need someone to help me figure out how to do that. And you know, some people have said to me, well, isn't that just like pretending to be positive? Isn't it just positive mindset training? And I don't think, I mean, that's part of it. And I think having a positive mindset really is a valuable thing, but there's more to it than that. As you've been saying, there's the nervous system regulation and Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's not so much fake it till you make it. It's about you get into such a narrow focus. For me, it's about broadening my focus because we think truth is this little teeny narrow pinpoint of a thing, but really truth is pretty broad. There's a spectrum to that. And I also want to say to you, like some cancer patients would strike up a conversation with me in the waiting room. And I was very much like, I don't know if I want to talk, but every time someone has had the courage to talk to me, the conversation that we've had has been so spiritual and so loving and kind and supportive and inspiring that I want to inspire more cancer patients to be brave enough to chat to someone else that might be in the room with you. So talk about that. I think you say something like you're kind of a loud, outspoken cancer survivor. Well, I mean, I have chose to speak very publicly about every single detail about my cancer journey. I teach at a university part-time too, and those students that are becoming doctors of chiropractic, when we talk about yoga therapy and cancer, I just open it up to a discussion of like, what is the thing you wish you could ask a cancer patient, but you're afraid to, because you're not sure if it's going to come out right. Like, let's have those dialogues now. I was in for just this past week ago for some blood work and I was walking around. I was a little unsettled. I had had saw another doctor of it was kind of fiery about it and like how the process went. So I was, you know, doing some meditative walking. And another patient, you know, was just like, hey, what's your name? 
what are you in for? <laughs> I mean, his brother was there with him. It was such a rich conversation about yoga therapy and the philosophy of yoga therapy through all life cycles. And how does it get you through struggling? He had been fighting for five years uh, with his cancer. And I think he was just seeking some strength from someone else, some hope. And I think hope needs to be more in the healing mix. We have more control of our health than we think we do. And so for me to speak openly about every stage and to advocate, I'm hoping I give permission to other cancer patients to speak up, to talk about it, to let healthcare workers know that particular word didn't really resonate with me and let them know what word would resonate. Co-create things with them, get them to slow down. Like at this stage of my healing, I've had to remind doctors, can we just go back to basic cell biology? Okay, mm -hmm. what has happened to my cells? Where do we think the state of my nervous system is in? The quest you're making, is that going to hold until we solve the nervous system issue? Probably not. And so then it just kind of brings down like, whew, Everybody can just relax, take a breath in the room, and we can move forward. And at times, you can get a little angry about that. Like, here I am, the patient. Why am I navigating my caregiver's feelings, my healthcare worker's feelings, and driving this? But, you know, that's where we're at in our healthcare system. And I've got to navigate it all and try to heal. Yeah. I think, you know, it's unfortunate but they are overworked. They're burnt out. They've been asked to do way too much. And probably in their situation, a lot of us would be kind of rushing through the next appointment to get through to the next patient. And, you know, while it does take emotional energy for you to ask to slow down, to connect, I watched my dad last April with his caretakers in ICU. They actually liked it. Once they realized he wanted to connect and that they could go in there and kind of breathe for a minute and stay with him and talk, they were happy to do it. I saw them walking through the door with smiles on their faces. Yeah. Every healthcare worker loves, loves, loves. But here's the thing. I don't know if you've noticed. Have you noticed when you walk into healthcare centers now, there's like these big posters about how to be respectful and to self-regulate. And if you can't self-regulate, they're not going to give you treatment. I don't know if you have anything like that. Yeah, they're all through the healthcare systems here. You know, I made a conscious decision to be a patient of gratitude. So while I'm doing a meditation or saying a prayer for my upcoming treatment and that it goes smoothly and that I come out the other end with the least amount of suffering as possible, I'm also saying that for my healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. Please allow them to show up to see me to be rested for things to go smoothly for them. I'm also during the treatment saying, thank you for your patience. Thank you for problem solving for me. You know, thank you for being present and holding my hand when I, that's just what I needed was a handheld, right? So you want to be intentional with that. I feel bad for the healthcare workers. They're not happy. They're working in a system that ties their hands. And sometimes I just apologize and I say, I'm so sorry that we have to jump through all these hoops to get what you and I both know is needed. I'm so sorry that you spent all these years at the hospital in school learning to become a medical doctor, but now you're having to become a professional insurance agent to understand how to work these different insurance contracts. Just thinking about my own treatment, chemotherapy wasn't open. It was just opening when I used it. Radiation was just opening when I used it. What about all those cancer patients had to stop treatment or couldn't get treatment during the pandemic? How did that affect the healthcare workers and the patient? Sometimes it takes me 15 months to get into a department. Just that due to my health and to my doctor's stress levels while we're waiting for that. I am grateful to have an allopathic community that saved my life, that knew what to do for all the medicines that I continue to be on that saved my life. But I wonder if it's not time to have some bigger conversations of how do we tweak healthcare? How does everybody make a sustainable income? But that profit that's left after the sustainable income, how can we shift that to now have healing first? with that amount of money that's left to support the patient more. I feel terrible when I watch patients suffer. And if they only knew about acupuncture or yoga therapy 
or a body worker maybe that knows John Pierre Baral or cranial sacral therapy, whatever that is, let's stop fighting over the modality of it. Every patient we know needs three to four different types of modalities. Those modalities might change based on the stage of cancer treatment. Can't we just be open to learning from all? Even what you just said about the signs around the hospital saying, if you can't self-regulate, we're not going to be able to treat you. That right there, they're having to put these, hire some darn yoga therapist so that when someone's <laughs> having a panic right? or a rage attack, that you can come and sit and feel and be heard and breathe and get into a more positive space so you can receive your treatment. I mean, wow, that's a whole area that I just realized right now that yoga therapists could be useful in. Absolutely. There are so many times I had to walk my mind off the ledge of panic for whatever reason, you know, whether it's because the pump that's putting the medicine into me works at a different rhythm than my body does, that my body's used to, that creates anxiety. But I knew how to walk myself off that ledge. What about the patient that doesn't know that or doesn't even know to ask for support for it? Yeah. What about the pain? I could be on all kinds of pain medicine. I choose not to because I know how to use my yoga therapy tools to negate that pain and that discomfort. Very simple, basic human needs. And we're not having a conversation on how to support our fellow humans, right? Why aren't we having that conversation? Why is that conversation not allowed? And it's low tech and you could do it in functional groups. So it could be low cost. Offer everyone going through chemo the chance to be in a breast cancer or, you know, ovarian cancer or whatever you're having functional group where you learn some of these skills. You probably read the same letter that I wrote, uh, read recently that the president of IOIT put out into our house. And she quoted a statistic in there by Benson and something. Do you remember who that company was? Maybe you can put it in your show notes. But it was basically a piece of research that was saying things like yoga postures, meditation, breathing could reduce healthcare costs from $600 up to $60,000 per patient per year. Now, I drink the Kool-Aid of yoga therapy, but I think that's a pretty big statistical number that I was even surprised by. Yeah, absolutely. People want to know, is yoga therapy worth it on the bottom line? Well, there's a quote right there. Yeah. And if you just simply think about it from homeostasis and bringing the nervous system back into balance, I mean, if that's all we did, just we can teach Mm -hmm. you how to breathe and meditate and bring your nervous system back into balance, that would be well worth it. I mean, as we were saying earlier, it affects so many other systems. So, so we're getting close to the end of our time, but I would love to hear any pearls of wisdom. I feel like this whole life experience has made you more wise, not that you weren't before, but (laughs) you're in touch with your own humanity, with the humanity of others. And one of the things you wrote when we were going back and forth about your pearls of wisdom, you wrote, I've learned to assertively advocate because I now know I have inherent value. What more could you say about that? Well, I've struggled with self-worth my entire time. I grew up in a very patriarchal farm family. (laughs) So I have struggled with my self-worth. Just for example, when you, if you go through radiation, you put on copious amounts of cream. You know, I had to coach myself that it was okay to stand in the changing room after radiation to take time, I would set a mindful timer on my app and I would breathe and I would touch this new landscape, right? That was my chest. I had to be okay with taking up five minutes in the dressing room and that's okay to take that five minutes for myself. I've had to advocate for what would work for me, what wouldn't work for me. I'm getting faster at taking people off my team rather than stressing about it for seven months. But I think this person is biased and not hearing me. I'm not being seen. I'm not being heard. We don't share a reality. Now I do that in 48 hours after oh, I've gone God. through rather than labor and stress about it till my next visit. We have to speak up for what you need, for what you want, what you desire. 
You have to slow down and let people know how you're feeling so that they can support you. If you keep all of that internalized, not anyone in your life can support you. As much as you love yourself, as much grace as you can give yourself, teaches other people how to love you, how to give you grace. If you can't give that to yourself, even though you're desperately longing for it from someone else, it's not going to happen. So you have to first start here. You know, I think many women especially can relate to this, that for as long as we can remember, everyone else's needs came first. And it was almost like we're not allowed to take up any space in the room and advocate for ourselves. And if we do, shame on you, you're being aggressive, you're being you know, obnoxious. You're not a good team player. I mean, I've heard it all. How do we get over that hump of saying, no, I can have boundaries. I deserve to be heard. I am not being obnoxious. I'm pretty good at advocating for what I need. Like, how do we get rid of those kind of what I call the bad girl? You're a bad girl. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I had to speak up really harshly. For example, I'll give a caregiver example. Some men can be good caregivers, but men, let's just say in our culture, have not really taught, been taught how to be a caregiver where women were kind of groomed right from we're a little girl, right? And so I had to ask my husband, I had to have a harsh conversation of either you're on my team and you're committed to being on the team of what I need, or I need you to leave. You know, let's decide that now before I start down this journey so I know what I'm working with. There were times that my husband, they'd ask the pain scale and he'd give the number. And I'd look and I'd be like, how do you know what I'm feeling right now? You know, so we had to have those conversations, right? So I laugh because I say, I think chemotherapy cleared out my bullshit filter. And <laughs> my girlfriends and I, we all joked, we're like, you know how you get a chemical peel for your face. We're like, chemotherapy is like cleaning out the inside of all that gunk now. And now it just flies out. I have a better ability to sit there and be like, is this my lesson to learn? No, this is the other person's lesson to learn. Okay, so now I can create more space and I can see what's happening in a broader view. And I can decide, do I want to interact with that? Do I not want to interact with that? Do I want to remove myself? Do I want to lean into it? And so I just have more clarity in that regard now. Exact same thing happened to me. I just have the clarity like, okay, that's a them problem. I'm stepping out of the way or, okay, I need to do some self-reflection and clean that up or yeah, we just really need to not be in contact and that's okay too. Like I never would have used to do that. I would have taken my life force and my energy to kind of help any soul that came along, whether it was my job or not, codependent. Um, (laughs) I'm just like, no, they got to figure this one out. I'm out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amy's got to worry about Amy. <laughs> and it's yeah, because I played the role of the fixer in my family, which then, you know, kind of went over into my business, right? And so I was just like, this role of the fixer isn't serving me. Yeah. And I need to work on fixing me and be here for me right now. And so now, you know, I ask to guide my hands and my words to help the other person open up their own healing. And to conserve the energy that I need for me for my own healing. I think that's a beautiful place for us to end today that we have this visualization or what we call in yoga, bhavana of I'm here to fix me and you get to fix you. I want to show people your website and your TED talk, but let's start with your website. If someone wanted to be in touch with you, either to receive yoga therapy or take workshops or read your blog or what are the things they might come and connect with you on? Well, this is my website, ism.health. I need the integrative sustainable movement because I believe the services that I have to offer integrate with your entire healing team. And I want that collaborative aspect. And you can find the services that you can work with me on virtually or if you're local, you could be in person, but I have more and more work um, virtually. My YouTube channel up there, 
I do things on my perspectives and opinions. So if you're a little interested in, you know, what Kim thinks about things, um, that's where you would go for that. I did my TED talk on yoga therapy. I jokingly said to one of my clients, Hey, wouldn't it be great if I did a TED talk on yoga therapy after grad school and they nominated me and they called. So I had to rise to that challenge as well. And I'm very proud of that piece of work as well. So the TED talk is TEDx Toledo. And the name of the talk is what is yoga therapy? And obviously Kimberly Searle, S-E-A-R-L. And I'll put this TED talk in the show notes. And then it looks like your website as well as your YouTube channel, if they type in integrative sustainable movement, they'll probably find you. Yes, correct. Great. And do you have anything upcoming that you want us to know about? Or are you on a little bit of a break? This probably I- won't out till after the new year. So, okay. So if it's coming out after the new year, I'm in a bit of a rebuild. I plan to do some yoga therapy clinics monthly throughout and really growing my on-demand learning. That's what I'll be focused on in the next year, my recovery. And in the on-demand learning will be a cancer recovery uh, workshop that I'm working on for people. And this particular one will be addressed towards breast cancer patients but I'll probably do one that's more general. I've worked with several different types of cancers throughout my career with clients and my male clients have been really asking me to do something that is male oriented. And could people see you privately if they wanted to schedule an appointment? on? Absolutely. The bulk of my work is done one-on-one. It's where I thrive the most is one-on-one with clients and meeting them where they are. So you can always set up one-on-one no matter where you are in the world. I do only speak English though, (laughs) but yes, I do work with everyone. Thank you, Kimberly, for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Kimberly Searle for spending this time with us today to help us understand more about cancer and how yoga therapy can help. I want to just finish today picking up on this thread about realizing that I have inherent value and that I don't need to take care of everyone else. I don't need to modulate their emotions. I don't need to say I'm sorry when I didn't do anything. And I don't need to let people cross my boundaries over and over and over again. I think so many of us were kind of brought up with this idea that you have to be a good girl. You have to be pleasant. You have to be the one that's going to take the shot and say, I'm sorry first. I struggle with this a lot. I think of the relationships I've lost. I think of the difficulties that I've had with certain people or organizations. And I go over them in my mind a lot and ask myself, If you were to stay in that situation or that relationship, what part of your soul would you have to give up to pretend that what was happening is okay when it's not for me? And that has just been a very useful tool to me when I start feeling that feeling of I'm a bad girl, I'm not enough. Should I have done it differently? Am I the one in the wrong that should have, you know, said they were sorry first? Like I just ask myself, were my boundaries crossed? Did I state it clearly and calmly? Do I still believe that that boundary was crossed and it wasn't okay? And if I were to go back and try to fix that, what part of me would I need to abandon if that person wasn't willing to come to the table and admit their piece of it, which a lot of people aren't. And at this point, especially after having gone through cancer, I'm just unwilling to keep abandoning myself. I think that's one thing that going through cancer taught me is that I'm not going to abandon myself anymore. And it's very, very hard and it's sad. And there is loss, there is grief, there is ending of relationships, and I'm not going to abandon myself. So I really thank my diagnosis and my time having to evaluate my life because going forward, I think I'll be better at not even getting into those situations because we abandon ourselves a tiny little piece at a time and we do it over and over and over until it becomes a big deal. And then you have to call it out. And then it looks like this rift 
when really we started with that abandonment of self, probably the first time we met that person or the first time we got involved in the organization and abandoned ourselves to get what we wanted. So I think the goal is that eventually we don't even go into those relationships or situations where we are required to abandon ourselves. So that is your food for thought. I hope you have a wonderful day and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. If you've enjoyed this program, there's a few things you can do to help us. You can share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family. You can give us a great rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. You can support us on Patreon, and you can download the Optimal State mobile app and start using it to track your own nervous system. All of these things will help us to produce and give you the gift of the Yoga Therapy Hour for many years to come. Thank you, our listeners, for supporting us. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.